When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 167, The Welsh Bible. Last episode, we talked about the Reformation in England and how it influenced a conservative and rural Wales. I mentioned a little bit about the changes that happened in the monasteries and how the removal of Catholic faith created issues and problems both for the English monarchy and for the Welsh population dealing with this massive transition in such a small amount of time. Keep in mind that this entire transition was within the better part of five years, which gave no chance for anyone to kind of catch their breath or get any sort of idea what was going on. I also mentioned that one of the uh, difficulties for the new faith was to reach people in Wales whose language was still largely a mystery to the English bishops and priests. Biblical translation was relatively uncommon, even in the early Tudor period. The medieval Bible was based on a version known as the Vulgate, a Latin translation by Jerome in the 5th century. It had been based off a previous version, which itself was known as the Ventus. This became the standard medieval version of the Bible from the earliest portions of the medieval period right up until the current day of the Tudor period. These versions were Latinized from both Aramaic and Greek translations, which were older still. Jerome's version was an attempt to codify and standardize the Bible and would become the basic standard from the 9th century in Western Europe onward. To say that the Bible was never translated to other languages at this point is not fully correct. At times, passages, and sometimes whole books, such as the Psalms, were translated to help build relationships with non-Roman populations who would not be familiar with Latin or have any sort of link to Romance languages that would at least be able to kind of understand what was going on. Germanic languages, of course, as they grew in Western Europe, would be completely different and would have a huge barrier to Latin, something that would arise nonetheless between clerics and parishioners throughout all of Western Europe within a few centuries of the end of the Roman Empire. What is strange in all of this is how the idea of a Latin version, which was perceived as the authoritative version, is something that would grow as the church did. As the church grew, the less and less pertinent that version became to the people in the various countries they served. A priest reading from a Latin translation from the 4th century would largely be speaking to an audience that had little chance to understand it. By the 12th century, no one spoke anything like Latin, and as a whole, the book was a mystery to millions. As literacy grew and demand started to grow to have localized translations in the medieval period— 
this became a problem. Mostly, these translation requests have been associated with heretical groups like the Cathars, but there were requests that came from local loyal Catholics who just wanted to read about Jesus in a language that did not have to be learned with the complexity of already having to learn your own language. It had been argued by scholars in the early 20th century that Pope Innocent III, amongst others, had forbidden the translation of the Bible out of Latin. This is something modern scholars seem to disagree with, as they saw Innocent fighting lay preachers over local translations rather than forbidding them. Though that feels like an interesting distinction because as the Bible gets translated, more and more people do see a distinction that creates more and more lay preachers and a divergence in Christian faith. And if there's a divergence and it's based on the translating of a Bible, does that then make it dangerous to translate the Bible? So you can see where the cycle kind of continues from all those kind of things. Also, as the Reformation kicks off, one of the key points of divergence becomes over the this translation of the Bible. The Catholic Church goes from snobbery about it to outright hostility to other translations. The reason I say that it was delayed was there were a number of 13th century translations of the Bible into both French and Castilian Spanish. At the same time, German translations were destroyed by inquisitors. So the idea that there was an understanding that translations could be useful or important was not universal, depending on which country you were in. In 1466, Johann Mentelin commissioned the printing of the first German vernacular Bible, which was one of the first books printed in German and the first German-language Bible since the 8th century. Now, to be clear, when I mean printing, I mean on a printing press, not handwritten. Greek-language translations of the Bible seemed to be a source of conflict between the Church and the Reformers, who saw the earlier Greek version to be better than the later Latin ones. As would be obvious in any sort of transcription situation, you would run into flaws going from one version to the next, and Jerome's version, as has been proven, was certainly not perfect by any means. So, a translation that went from as I've heard it described a few times in talking to people, the original Greek into uh, Latin became a problematic situation to begin with. So all of these various retranslations were seen as problematic by the reformers. This, of course, made the Greek version, again, to be perceived as somehow better and somehow more perfect. This led to scholars such as Erasmus in 1516 to publish his version of the Greek-language New Testament called the Novum Instrumentum Omni, in other words, the New Testament revised and improved. While it was the second version to be published, the first Greek translation was actually printed two years earlier in Spain by Cardinal Jimenez de Cisneros. Erasmus' version became the standard which all other Reformation Bibles were used to push forward the idea and usage of vernacular Bibles. Tyndale's English version of the New Testament was directly translated from this version of the Bible. When the King James Version was commissioned after the Tudor dynasty, they still used the Erasmus translation as the basis for their own versions of these scriptures. So translation was hugely important to the Reformation. They allowed various faiths to offer 
a local take on the Bible, give people what who were gaining literacy, the upper and merchant class specifically, an opportunity to read it for themselves. Of course, out of this, lay preachers developed in part because they had their own take on what they were reading. Obviously, as you read the Bible and you have your own ideas and your own opinions in a situation where you no longer have a intermediary between you and the Word of God, all of a sudden people would start to think, well, maybe I need to be my own intermediary. So things would sort of diverge from that reason alone. Most of the early reformers, of course, were clergy or theologians who were frustrated by what they saw as the corruption of the church under the weight of money, power, and politics. They sought to purify it under terms they understood. This starts to change and diverge as lay people begin to see these same sort of things and come up with their own ideas and their own concept of what should be changed. Biblical Christianity to them was not just what was fed to them at Mass. No matter which priest was leading it, and all of them started to diverge into all different categories of what would become known as Christianity. So, when the Welsh translation of the Bible begins, it is in a situation where the obvious ideas and desires of all sides remain relatively clear. Most of the Christians of the era likely saw the changes as unsettling, some possibly hopeful, or some even horrifying. But within a hundred years, it would devolve into very different situations in each country in Western Europe. It was very unlikely that a Tudor Protestant or Catholic had any inkling of the chaos of the next 200 years of religious wars and persecution that would follow these different understandings and interpretations. Some Victorian-era sources believe that the Bible was first translated into Welsh in 1470 during the War of the Roses. There is zero evidence of that, just what appears to be apocryphal stories from some dubious writings. There is no evidence at any point that there was a full-blown Welsh Bible. There may have been Brythonic translations floating around during the time of St. David, but even that is extremely unlikely, as we obviously have no record of any such thing. We just have not heard of any contemporary sources discussing anything even close to this, or at least in that degree. Welsh parishioners and clergy and others during the Tudor age felt they were shortchanged by the Reformation in England. The representation as members of the faith and the Anglican churches in general had done little over the time of Henry and Edward VI to actually reach beyond the walls of the English clergy. As I mentioned before, the lack of funding generally poor nature of Wales at the time, meant that many of the local churches were struggling to reach their new flock. Time and time again, complaints were made when a local cleric was about as local as an American who visits Berlin. They could not speak the language, they did not know the culture, and they had no ability to relate or to have sympathy to their own flock. Neglect was bad in Wales during this period. Many church buildings that the clergy took over were in a state of disrepair, and congregational dysfunction was very large. The general state of the challenge facing them sometimes simply overwhelmed some, and they gave up. Services for local Christians in Wales were spotty. As I mentioned previously, absenteeism in local parishes were common. And the loss of local clergy over the years had worn down the day-to-day 
and the usefulness of the parish priest. In some cases, priests would travel from miles away just to carry out even a small amount of the sacraments of the church. Baptism, confirmation, marriages, funeral rites, all of these things are key components in understanding and relating to the Christian church. And if you can't even do these, it becomes problematic. This was, as what I stated in the last episode, a level of care that would make Sunday worship a less important thing and something that became more and more separated. With no Bible in local language, there was no way to even carry out something approximating it. In a way, you can see how fertile this kind of ground was for other voices. Philosophers, theologians, or agnostics could influence the way people thought and acted. And there was nothing that this absentee church could say. There was no authority to appeal to because what would the local Welsh farmer know about scripture or parables other than the vague understanding they would get occasionally from the church? Combined with all of this, the language barrier. Imagine, for example, that someone was sent to your country to represent you know, the, the faith of his country or her country, bringing you their doctrine, but he could only talk in Mandarin. His books were all in Mandarin, and he was trying to tell you about Buddha. You get some of the message because, of course, they have pictures and they have ways of signaling what they're talking about, but no way to actually get it across to you because you might know as much Chinese as they do English. Um, all of this kind of thing causes problems. Now imagine you're illiterate and you are dismissive of this person because they come from an area you perceive to be hostile towards you. A North Wales fisherman in Rue or a farmer near Carmarthen will worry more about the success of their endeavors over their crops, over their haul of fish, than about the concerns of a faraway king and pope and their conflict. In the order to speak to these people, to convince these people, you need some practical way to reach them. Bringing religious tracts and the Bible to the masses allowed for the Anglican faith to make a foothold on the public. While there may not have been a Welsh-language Bible before 1567, there was some work by Welsh scholars and clergy that was put into a document. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. 
Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. In Welsh, some passages of scripture, a few explanations of biblical stories, and tracts to an extent were put out there, but that was it. There was no reason prior to that era to do this. There was no driving force behind it. Certainly, the Catholic Church saw no need for it. So thus, it didn't really happen. It changed with the arrival of Elizabeth I. She, as a firm Anglican, wanted and demanded better protection for Anglicans in Wales and England. Elizabeth's government in 1563 created a law which instructed the Anglican bishops in Wales and Hereford to begin translating the Bible and the Book of Common Prayers into Welsh. The head of this quest was William Salebury, an Oxford-educated scholar from Conwy who was an unabashed Protestant. Under Queen Mary's regime, Salisbury was in hiding, along with a number of Protestants, both English and Welsh. When Elizabeth ascended to the throne and returned Protestants to power, he became very influential in Wales. Salisbury was also trying to make Welsh understood to both English speakers and English understood to Welsh speakers. He was actually one of the first to create a Welsh-English dictionary. He wrote polemics and theological pieces that took on the Catholic opinion of the day. He had studied languages and spoke both Welsh and English as well. He could at least read Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. This background meant that he was sympathetic to the thoughts of Luther and Erasmus. He advocated that people should, to quote him, insist on having Holy Scripture in your language. So it is obvious that when the Welsh Language Bible Act was passed, he would be the center point for translating it. His knowledge of language placed him solidly in the best scholarly position to lead the endeavor, and he was joined in that process by the bishop, Richard Davies, who was the bishop of St. David's, and Thomas Hewitt, a procentor, someone apparently who prepares worship services. I'm not as familiar with that title. They worked at the bishop's palace in Camarthen, where they translated the New Testament from Greek. Hewitt and Davies each translated different parts of the New Testament, but the majority of the work was still done by Salisbury. He went on to translate the Book of Common Prayer from English into Welsh as well, and by May 1567, they had issued that book, and the New Testament was then printed and delivered on October 1567. As a sign of the lack of printing ability in Wales, all of these were, in the end, published in London. 
This, of course, was not the whole Bible that would take another 20 years. Salisbury had, of course, focused in on the New Testament. His concentration on that was based on his understanding of Greek and his ability to read Latin and to take both versions of the Bible and translate it. But it was still an incredibly important step and one that was very noteworthy and useful. The name that I think a lot of people will be more familiar with is William Morgan. He would take this on 20 years later, Born in a parish of Penmachno in North Wales, he would be a key character in finally getting the Welsh Bible fully translated. Morgan was educated at Cambridge, and both as a scholar and theologian. He would eventually receive a doctorate and become the bishop of both Llandaff and then eventually St. Asaph during his lifetime. Morgan firmly believed that all Bibles needed to be translated, not just the New Testament. And because of that, he started working on the Old Testament in 1580. He wanted a united Welsh language Bible. He then revised Salisbury's New Testament and published them both together in 1588. He continued to try and correct and maintain these books to make them better as he went along, and due to that, he continued to the end of his life making corrections and edits. And unfortunately for him, it would not be finished by him, but rather by his successor, Bishop Richard Perry, and a scholar named John Davies. In 1620, they would publish this definitive edition of the Bible for the Welsh people. The translation of the Bible into Welsh was important both for the development and understanding of and the printing of Welsh language documents, but it was also key to the survival of the Welsh language. It was one of the first printed books in Wales. It kept the language alive and helped grow it, without which, likely, the language, having no official place, may have, if not gone completely extinct, become into a similar place that, say, Cornish or Scottish Gaelic has ended up. This printing instead conferred status on the Welsh as a liturgical language to be used and reinforced through worship. This in turn contributed to the language's continued use as a means of everyday communication. Many of the laity of the ages after the early 17th century would continue to rely on this book to help them through daily living, to understand their world and how to interpret day-to-day life. Before this, Welsh had reached the stage where it was perceived by the wealthy and powerful as the language of the rural and educated people. This helped change that. No longer just a dying language with old roots. It kept afloat in the printing age. It created a sense that the divine protection of the old language was important, and as such, it was still important. Years of Anglicanization was slowed in part because of this. The reason why Wales survives today as a living language can be put down to the fact that they started to publish documents and books in Wales. The reason why I continue to stress this and the reason why we've done an episode specifically on this 
and why I focused so heavily in the last two episodes along this way is not just because the Protestant Reformation is important to Wales, not just because the rise of Anglicanism affects the culture, affects the way, you know, the monasteries went, affects the way the Catholic social safety net that had existed before the Black Plague ceases. It's also the fact that you have this important creation that comes out of it. This book that, while religious in nature, is an important piece of daily life. As people gain literacy, and as we mentioned last time, literacy comes not just to everyone. It comes to one and two and three and four. And yes, it starts from the top down, but eventually you'll have at least somebody in the household that can at least read. And these people being able to read in their own language, to be able to read stories in the Bible to their children, to their spouse, to their grandparents, is a significant way to keep the language alive in ways that wouldn't happen if it was just the language of the household. We see this in a lot of ways in, say, native languages in North America, aboriginal languages, if you want to use that term. They in some cases have gone out of existence, in some cases they cling on barely simply because officialdom did not use them. There was no use of them in government, there was no use of them in religion because both of those were culturally Western and so thus the language in some cases still exists today thanks to some stubborn people who kept possession of it, but a majority of them just went out completely and in some cases, we have lost languages forever because of this. So this is a critical and very important juncture and one that the language of Wales, Cymru and Cymreg, only exist because of this, at least in definition and at least in formal nature. Obviously, the language would still carry on to some degree, but certainly the formalization of it here allows a lot of things to happen later that just probably wouldn't be the case otherwise. Like I said, if you look at other countries in similar circumstances like Cornish, like Scottish Gaelic specifically in those cases where they have the exact same influences, the exact, exact same pressures, those languages have gone into heavy disuse, much more so than Wales, where there is still a third of the population that it is, if not its first language, they at least are fluent. That is not the case in Cornwall. That is certainly not the case in Scotland. So that's something to keep in mind. So in a way, this is how the language was continued and how it continued to grow. And thus, it's a main focus point for us in the Welsh history and in this particular podcast. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can always talk to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can reach out to me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast as well. If you'd like to help this podcast continue to grow and to develop as we reach into these new times into modern Europe. Uh, you can help me by contributing at patreon.com forward slash 
Welsh history. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.